You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than 4 bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only 3 bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1355, with guest Ben Day. Recorded Saturday, September 10th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're having so much fun today. This is our third show recording on September 12th. Yep. So and, uh, and nicely, all three shows are in order for to be published in the same week. Like, how luxurious is this? That's pretty awesome. So yeah. you, you already know that today is the day I quit drinking. <laughs> yep. I quit drinking water. I'm actually going for dehydration. Nice. So, two weeks from now, we'll be talking about how you died. Yeah, that's right. No, I, I quit drinking alcohol today. And, oh, good for uh, you. Buddy. My wife with me, so we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're doing it. So, you to- take all the booze out of the house. Yeah, exactly. And I'm auctioning off my bottle of Pappy Van Winkle 23-year-old. Ah. The current, well, as of this recording, the current bid is $1,500, but it's probably higher now, or it might yeah. even be sold by now. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. Just going to pull the trigger on that at some Pulling point. Pulling the trigger. Yep. All right. Well, uh, how you been, man? I've been really, really good. In, in theory, this show is publishing while we're at Ignite. Yeah, that's right. The IT show, you know, that uh, TechEd was part of and it's all sort of rolled together. So right. hopefully we're recording a whole bunch of shows in person, which is fun. That's always, always a good fun. time. Absolutely. Yeah. And seeing our friends too. Yeah. Good in, stuff. In, in Atlanta, you know, all good. I have uh, an interesting thing for Better No Framework today that was sent over the Twitters. So oh. roll the music. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? This is smallest.net.com. Smallest.net. Yeah. What does this mean? This is a Hanselman production. Okay. And uh, it basically is a website that says, do you have .net? You have at least 4.6 on your machine. We can only infer this as the user agent of your browser doesn't give us the version. Try the .net checker application to get more accurate version information. Interesting. So there's a link to uh, .NET Checker and the link to get.net. And it has some other interesting uh, information there about your versioning. Cool. Yeah. But it is interesting that the user agent can show, you know, the, the version of .NET. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. That something is embedded in the user agent. Yeah. I, I mean, didn't is know that. Is that true for every browser? 
I don't know. No, actually, no. Um, I went with, I think it was Safari. Um, might have been Chrome on my iPhone 6 right. Plus, And uh, it couldn't tell from that. Right. Yeah. So, so I wonder if the presumption just goes, oh, you're running Windows 10, therefore you must have 4.6. It's pretty much in the OS. Yeah, that's right. The user agent, it shows it to me here, Mozilla 5.0, Windows NT 10.0. Right. So that tells it, uh, and yeah, and there's nothing about the version of .NET in there. So right. that's so it's right. just implied by the OS. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. That's random. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. Uh, no learn at eleven. Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show thirteen forty six. We just did with uh, John Sanmez, which is almost like our annual career conversation with John. Yeah, I like right? John, and uh, always generates a lot of conversation. You know, I don't know how often we should do these. But certainly, I mean, once a year with John is kind of fun. We get a few others. I think today's is going to be mm. you know pressing along those same edges. Yep. But yeah, it's remarkable to see in just a short amount of time where people react so strongly. Uh, one fellow was nice enough to make a list of all the books we mentioned in the, uh, in the show. Wow. So, uh, but that was not the comment I'm reading. The comment I'm reading is from uh, a JP Niderer who said, I really enjoyed this episode. John's story about doing presentations without slides to get out of his comfort zone was inspiring. Yep. It's hard to experience growth in any facet of life without stretching out into the scary, uncomfortable places. Mm. Thanks for reminding us of the sentiment. My takeaway from this episode is to seek out those challenging moments and embrace them when they come. Yeah. And by the way, the book that John mentions and forgets the title of at about 52, about deliberate practice, chess and guitar practice, that was actually me right. talking about this, was Be So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Awesome. Isn't that a great line? That is a great line. Other words, just be awesome. Be awesome. So the actual comment comes from Steve Martin, the comedian, when huh. asked by somebody, you know, how do I get to be successful as a comedian? He said, be so good they can't ignore you. That's great. The, the real premise of the book, which I think is really powerful, is this idea that this whole pursuing your, your dream kind of thing, uh, in pursuing your passion, is kind of dumb. Yeah. But really, you've got to go press against your skills. Right. And your skills will lead to passions. Yeah. And so, and JP goes on to say, it's a great read that fits right along with the podcast and improving the standings in our careers. The book's focus is on maximizing the following in the workplace, fulfillment, value, skills, and purpose. Yeah. I'll include a link in the show notes to Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. I absolutely highly recommend the read, but it's just going against that sort of conventional wisdom of, you know, following your passions and thinking a little more deeply about it. Uh, very compelling book. I read it a number of years ago, and I can't recommend it enough. Hmm. Great. So, JP, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And, hey, send us a tweet. We uh, we don't ignore them. Nice. Yeah. Uh, now let's welcome to the show our very special guest, Benjamin Day. Ben is a consultant and trainer specializing in software best practices using Scrum with Microsoft's DevOps tools. Ben's main areas of emphasis include Team Foundation Server, Scrum, software testing, and software architecture. He's a Microsoft Visual Studio ALM MVP, also a certified Scrum trainer via Scrum.org, and a speaker at conferences such as TechEd and VS Live. 
When not developing software, Ben's been known to go running and sea kayaking in order to balance out his love of cheese, cured meats, and champagne. Nice. Ah. Oh, man. Awesome. His online courses are available at Pluralsight, of course. He can be contacted via benday.com. Welcome, Ben. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. You, uh, you're into the cured meats and cheeses, are you? And you've come to the right place, because... <laughs> <laughs> well, related to that, I, I was thinking as you're reading off the bio that it actually should say, I also love cocktails, too, so... Ah, it's, very good. Yeah. I used to love cocktails. Uh, <laughs> I'm really trying to not do it on school nights. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, man boot problems and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but when you don't have a real job, it turns out you just end up drinking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it is kind of funny because there, there are certain days that I notice that I just haven't left the house for two or three days in a row. And uh, yeah, it, eventually you need to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are consequences. Actually, I think I'm, I messaged the older daughter yesterday afternoon and said, well, I've been in the basement for the whole day. I need to walk the dog. You want to come with me? <laughs> and she's like, if you're buying Starbucks, I'm like I'm buying Starbucks. Awesome. So off we go. <laughs> Just anything to get out of your house and see a human. Yeah, something like that. Well, a Starbucks barista, which is like a human, only different. Uh, you, sort of. Now, do you, uh, when you find you're out on your sea kayak that you're sort of in the moment and, and uh, getting all of that... A uh, single m- purpose of mind together? Yeah, something like that. Uh, it's, you know, getting that relaxation going, um, you know, apart from uh, trying to keep myself from thinking about the shark that I ran into a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, oh. I think the whole thing about yeah. sea kayaking is you're, con- you're constantly focused on not dying. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, it's like off the left, your paddle says, here's shark. And then off the right, here's shark, here's shark, here's shark, here's shark, here's shark. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, you look like a seal from underwater and, you know, Cape Cod, and we've got great whites and all that stuff. It's what could possibly go wrong? You don't really taste like a seal, do you? And don't get any one of those discount inflatable sea kayaks, too, because, you know, those are just like balloons to the, to the I, sharks. I've always kind of thought about with my sea kayak, if the front end got bitten off by a great white shark, that would be kind of like the kayaking equivalent of too much wasabi on your sushi. <laughs> <laughs> Shark <laughs> spits it out. <laughs> so uh, you you're against multitasking. Yeah, I'm I'm very much into focus. Like a lot of this is coming out of um, you know doing all my scrum training, scrum coaching stuff, and um, you know really what kind of kicked it off for me recently was um, it was finishing up my DevOps course for Pluralsight and. I came across this uh, study about multitasking from Gerald Weinberg, and it's yeah, it's just kind of brutal. Yeah, well, we, apparently we can't do it. We our brains aren't made to do it. I, I saw a really good test, and I can't remember if it was on Brain Games or one of those shows where they had this guy who supposedly was a self-touted excellent multitasker business guy he could carry on business meetings and play chess with it with his family and walk the dog at the same time apparently and they put him in a car and had him do a slalom obstacle course while somebody called him and asked him questions random questions like about capitals and you know trivial questions and stuff and he had to see how many he got right and how well he did on the obstacle course and he failed miserably i mean that's just one little 
one little test, but there, there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that the brain just doesn't multitask like, like we think it should. We look at computers and say, wow, if they can do it, we can, but not really. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's exactly dead on. And it almost, I think the science says that the more you think you can multitask, the worse you yes, actually are at right. it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the thing that I've run into over time is that, like I'm going to pick on project managers, but people that are typically project managers tend to think that they could just give their people five simultaneous tasks and that they're just going to rock on all five of them simultaneously. And the science says that what ends up happening is that with five simultaneous tasks, you end up with 75% wasted effort. Yeah. Context switching is that expensive. It's that bad. Yeah. And like when you start to think about, you know, if you lose... 75% of your week, what's that? That's like, I'm not good with the math, but that's uh, almost Tuesday through Friday gone. Yeah. Basically because of multitasking, if you've got five things. What I need is a audio cue, and I don't mean C-U-E, I mean Q-U-E-U-E, an audio cue that's tapped into my brain that n can tell by my brain when I'm not paying attention. And then, you know, cue up all the things that my wife is telling me while I'm not paying attention and then actually hit, you know, give me a little shock and then replay what she just said. And that would really work, I think. <laughs> You'd become the best listener of all time. That's right. I think, you know, it's the shock therapy that does it. But, you know, it's classic Pavlovian conditioning, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's the, the product name right there should be called Active Listener. <laughs> <laughs> it's like ActiveX, only different. It's a shocking yeah. new device. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm thinking about ActiveX, and could you, like, put a plug in for IE? For yeah, kind of sure. Let's jokes. do that. <laughs> Nerd <laughs> jokes. <laughs> so, what do you recommend in order to either get better at multitasking or completely ditch it altogether? What do you, how do you recommend that we work in this modern world? Well, if you're working by yourself, it's a lot easier. If you're a, a one-person team, then you really just kind of have to notice that you've got, you know, one, two, three, four, five things you have to work on. And rather than trying to work on them all at once, pick one thing and drive it to done then move to the next one. And then you're not paying that context switch, um, right. you know, which is a pretty big tax. But the, the thing that comes up when you're dealing with scrum and you're working with teams is that if, if you've got people on your teams that are all trying to do three, four tasks simultaneously and everybody else on the team is doing that, you've got all this problem of everyone is doing multitasking times everybody else on the team. So, one of the things that I try to coach my teams to do is to focus on something called definition of done yeah. and focus on one thing at a time and as a team, only have one thing in flight at once. Mm. Now, that's not always 100% possible, um, but trying to minimize the number of things that the team has in flight makes a big difference because then you're sort of keeping it, keeping the multitasking on the team down to a minimum. Yeah. And then... That also has the effect of all the individuals on the team, they're not paying as bad of a context switch. So, if you're context switching to something that is related to the same feature, but it maybe isn't your little wrinkle of that feature, mm -hmm. if you have to answer somebody's question, for example, um, when you context switch, it's not the biggest change in the world. It's not like going from, I'm working on feature A, now you have to go work on feature Z. So, it, it's all about trying to right. not 
do as many things at once. You know, I think you're hitting on a very key point around this, which is that it's more about knowing when you're done. I don't think there's anybody who sits down on a given day and says, all right, I need five things to get started, <laughs> right? It's more that you have a bunch of badly defined tasks. Mm. And so you start on one until you don't know what to do next. And then you switch rather than get stuck or try and figure that out, you switch to something else. Are you a fan of the Pomodoro technique? Uh, where you sort of have, you know, don't interrupt me for yeah, 15 minutes, 25 minutes. Yeah. I personally have not used that, but that seems like a really good idea. Yeah. Um, but that seems a little bit like it's, um, it's sort of enabling the original bad behavior. It's basically saying, don't bother me. I'm going to work on four things simultaneously as opposed to everyone on your team working on the same thing. Oh, I see. Well, the whole idea is for each individual to use it uh, and, and map out and get good at mapping out tasks in terms of how many Pomodoros or 25 minute segments that it takes. And so the idea is that you can say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, in, in the remaining five minutes and a half hours for, you know, reflection and trying to figure out, you know, exactly how much time it took and did it work or not. And, uh, the whole idea is that you, you can say, I'm going to spend one block of time, one Pomodoro on this task, one on this task and one on this task. Now I've spent an hour and a half and I'm probably got deeper into each one of those tasks than I would have if I tried to do them all at the same time. That sounds pretty good. And it sounds like it would also have the side effect of causing you to stop once in a while. Right. Like, I, I'm sure you guys have like tried to tackle a software problem oh, yeah. and you're just drowning on it and you're like, I can solve this in two more minutes. And then four hours later, you're still nowheresville. Um, yeah. That Pomodoro technique, it's like you at least take a pause and say, how am I doing? Am I just eating it on this or not? Right. Am I churning over? Um, the, yeah. the, the, also, and I don't have the science to back this up, but I've been told about this by a couple other people is that research shows that you do need to give your brain a break every 15, 20 minutes, half hour, you know, just to, to ease up and think about something completely different, like, uh, you know, like your favorite drama or something like that. Watch a trailer, a movie trailer. And then go back to what you were doing. Just completely get out of it. It just sort of shake up the thought process. Right. It, th that kind of sounds a little bit like, um, so there's this podcast that I listen to from time to time from the New, from the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, there's one episode they did recently talking about burnout. Hmm. And I think that multitasking and burnout kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, where if you're always working at... 99.9% .9 capacity at some point you just kind of you just melt and your productivity goes worse and worse and worse and then your enjoyment of your job goes right through the floor yeah well and the funny part is you get so buried in in that burned out state you don't even remember what non-burned out is like yeah, like you, yeah. You, uh, and it doesn't you can't unburn out quickly either like even a week away I don't think it's enough it's it's kind of funny like i'm i'm a little bit burned out right now i'm like a you know a two out of a possible 10 enough that i can notice it right and what did i do to sort of stop doing burnout i, I wrote a utility to reorganize my itunes library so <laughs> it's so I, you know i it's not like i took a really good break either like sometimes it's just 
like, I don't know, with software developers, we like coding. Yes. So sometimes I think that it's kind of counterintuitive. We kind of want to code in order to get over the burnout, but really we maybe should just stop and go outside instead. Probably right. Um, I've heard this, you know, speaking of going outside, uh, have you heard this theory about, maybe you have too, Richard, about uh, going barefoot on the ground to pass energy back and forth between the earth? And there's some, and it sounds really kind of strange. It's called grounding, I think. It sounds a little kind of out there, like, hey, let's reorganize the moon rocks in the garden for for energy. But uh, but apparently there's there is some science to it. I think I haven't seen it, but well, at the simplest level, doing something so odd as to you know go barefoot and walk outside, like the neat thing about your feet is they'll let you know when you stepped on something you shouldn't. Well, that's true. So yeah. suddenly you're very focused on not hurting your feet, hmm. which means you're not focused on all the dumb crap around you. Yeah, all the distractions. You actually know where you are, you know where you're going, and you're yeah. you're aware of your surroundings. I mean, if you just think through the process of, I'm going to go from inside my house to my lawn barefoot. Yeah. You're going to go through a few different surfaces while you do that, mm-hmm. and you really need to focus on something as mundane as your feet. Mm-hmm. Not the linked list you, that's currently broken, mm-hmm. you know, not the query that isn't running. None of those things. You just care about your feet. Yeah. I wonder if that's like mindfulness meditation. Like instead of concentrating on your breath, you're concentrating on the feel of the texture on the ground on your feet. I was. So you're basically getting that same result of, you know, kind of calming down and just becoming one with yourself again. I think it's more just the terror of, of getting a splinter. <laughs> Stubbing your toe. Yeah. yeah. But it's just. Yeah, but, or that. But think about it. It's still essentially the same thing. You're kind of getting out of your own way because you're fo- you really are genuinely focused on your feet. Like a, a splinter will change your mind. It's true. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think so, it's it's staying focused on one thing. Whatever that thing is, is probably good for the brain once in a while. Just switching it up. So, I guess probably... I wonder if slamming your hand in a car door would uh, be equally effective at sort of switching it up and focusing on your body. Welcome to car door therapy. (laughs) Before we start today, please make sure you've paid in cash. (laughs) All right, step one. You're not going to be able to take your wallets out after this. Step one, put your hand in the door. (laughs) By the way, no refunds. No refunds. (laughs) Paid in advance. Uh, you know, we started off this show talking about a book. Another, another book I read a while ago was The Power of Full Engagement. And they, yes. they talked very much about this idea that this is about managing energy, not time. That you have a limited amount of energy and everything you think about re- represents a consumption of that energy. And so, uh, as long as you're worrying about time, you're burning energy on that. Just get keep your energy management under control. How do you recharge and what are you spending it on? And the rest will come. That sounds like a great idea. Just like just paying attention to where that's coming from, and yeah, it, yeah, like with software, we just get so into stuff and and sort of related to this multitasking thing. Um, with with teams, they just sometimes, especially when things are going bad, you just are going, you're working and working and working and working and working, and you completely lose touch with what you liked about the job, what you're really trying to do, and you've you've just completely lost control 
on what's happening in your life. And that's uh, like, that's no fun. Like that's usually when I'm at this point of like, wow, when does this project wrap up so I can go work someplace else? Yeah. I could be a ditch digger. I'd be happier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've said that on a project, you know, in the middle of, you know, we're all pounding our head against something in the midst of a death march. I just sort of, I could be a ditch digger, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this can be funny. This just past weekend, we were out with some friends, um, mostly not software people. And they, one of them was talking about a new career. Mm-hmm. And I, and I and he said, like, why do you like software development so much? And I'm like, well, because you, you get pretty far into your head. That's actually a fun part of it. It does yeah. pay well. Yeah. But it's like, I have whole days disappear because I'm just deeply absorbed in the problem I'm working on. And I come out the other side feeling really good. Like, wow. Well, abstraction by itself is fun to me yeah. anyway, especially, you know, being a musician, it's all abstract. And so that's fun. And then on top of that, you get to see the results of your thoughts, basically. Uh, sort of immediately and that instant gratification of, you know, hey, I told this machine to do that and it did it is, is pretty gratifying. Although I guess that pleasure wanes over time. Do you think? I, I think that that actually gets, it just changes. You know, music is a great example on that. Like, so I went to school for music performance and it's, what you, you kind of love what you've just created, but then mm. there's also this other component of, just you can almost endlessly work on getting better. Yep. And that pursuit of mastery, it, there's always something new to learn. And it's the same in software. Oh, like, yeah. Um, you know, when I when I was in college, I used to write lots and lots of music. And then I found that when I got into software, it scratched the same itch for composition. Sure. But then, you know, just like with piano, I wanted to learn 8,000 scales in certain ways. Right. With software, it's just there's always some new technique that you can get better at. Right, or some new pattern that you can uh, that realize is going on and, and use over again. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Actually, I fell down a well today. I started looking at the documentation for the data annotation stuff for uh, ASP MVC and yeah. EF. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is really fascinating stuff. It's going to turn into a blog post or something like that. Right. But- I do like the term fell down a well. It's like <laughs> you're sort of acknowledging, well, there goes those hours. Noony, 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 noo. I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm married because she's like if you go on a date and you're like, yeah, I spent three and a half hours looking at the documentation for data annotations. Yeah. That's pretty much the uh, end of that date right there. Pretty much. I gotta go. Uh, yeah. What <laughs> yeah. is that? Crickets? I hear crickets. What? <laughs> Just a sonic boom <laughs> as the person runs away from you. Uh you're a scrum guy, so do you see symptoms of burnout and just sort of this this exhaustion in in the scrum side of things? Like the the whole idea, I thought of the daily stand up was that's how we got everybody engaged. Yeah, you'd like to think so, but <laughs> I'm an optimist. Yeah, well, that's what. So you've got it right in the in the abstract. Now the problem is a lot of organizations don't do that. They don't do it properly. They've got too many things happening at once. And now that meeting is just a sort of weird death march status report. Right. Um, yeah. I, I taught, I don't know, 10 or so um, two-day scrum classes at a company here um, in Massachusetts. And, you know, at, at a certain point, I'm just getting this feel like everyone's beaten down. And I'm asking, how many people are, are burned out right here? And you get like 
fifty percent of the room is raising their hand. Yeah, and it's and the other half is lying. They, <laughs> and the other half is lying, right? <laughs> and when you talk to them one on one, you find out that their priorities are shifting you know, minute by minute by minute so that they never can actually get all the way to done. Right. So, on that that music thing, like where you create, um, you know, you write some song or, or you get good at playing some tune or with software, you suddenly master some design pattern. That's like you get that uh, feedback, that reward right there. But if you're a team and you never actually make it to done because you're constantly having your priorities shift, man, that just beats the team's morale to, sure to smithereens. You know, the whole first half of the show, we've sort of gone back to this, when do I know when I'm done, right? Mm. Knowing clear goals and so forth. And then one of the problems with software is no software ever is done. You could always do more. So if you don't actually set down a set of guidelines that says this is done or this is sufficient, it's never finished, mm. it's sufficient, so that people can actually take stuff out of their brains, like as long as you're got no clear goal lines, I just suddenly looks. I look at that Scrum meeting as here's a concentration of multitasking. <laughs> you don't have enough problems. Why don't you listen to everybody else's problems? <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> it sounds like a, a song, an early Talking Head song, where he goes, "I want to talk. I want to talk as much as I want. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna give the problem to you." <laughs> that sounds awesome man so the, the thing that pops in my mind on that is um when i teach my scrum classes one of the first things that i say is that there's nothing closer to a magical silver bullet in software development than a written definition of done yep um and i, I talk about this in my scrum master skills class on plural site um have the team come together, like the testers, the the business analysts, the project managers, the whoever, the developers, DBAs, have them all together, sit down and say, what does it take for us to actually make something 100% done? Mm-hmm. What are right. all the steps? And write it down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Now, that that really says what you have to do. And now everyone can look at it and it's not role specific. Like yep. software developers tend to think that it starts and ends as soon as they check into TFS or Git or whatever. Well, it checks in, it's done. But there's a lot more that goes into delivery. Um, and when you've got that written definition of done, you can have check boxes that say, well, here are all the things that haven't really been done on this feature yet. Um, and it really, really helps with estimation because yeah. now you're not just thinking about, how long is it going to take for me to code this thing? It's how long is it going to take for the team to do all the stuff we have to do in order to deliver something that doesn't have a lot of technical debt in it. Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to rearrange the moon rocks in the garden of my mind for the purpose of allowing the natural funny to come to the surface. The key is not to force it. Okay. Ready? Okay. All right. Here we go. Is it working? I feel much better. Do you? Do you did the funny come out? No. <laughs> I don't think it's working. We're getting funnier all the time. I know I'm laughing. I'm going to get my money back at the Mark Miller School of Comedy. <laughs> 
Actually, speaking of Mark Miller, it's time to give away a Developer Express D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries. <laughs> movie, movie, movie. I, I can't believe I wrote that. What did you do? Deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Filippo Pensalfini. Ah, congratulations, Filippo. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you, sir. And uh, Filippo just won Developer Express's D-Experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. All right, Ben, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 today... To spend on technology, what would you buy? Oh, I think I need a, a new music workstation. Like yeah. My, my my piano needs to be replaced. It's probably 10 years old. Like, the action's all worn out. I want something that I can do some digital recording on and sequencing, all that kind of stuff. I don't know. Maybe you, uh, another Surface Book to, to go along with that because you got to get expensive hardware for no apparent reason. So, you like the all-in-one music workstations? The M1 was one of the first, uh, Korg M1 was one of the first music workstations I owned, and it would, it did all that stuff. Um, but I, then I got into the, you know, having the sounds on the computer and generating them from just a, a good MIDI controller. That MIDI controller thing is kind of what I got in mind. Just some kind of a nice control interface that goes into the, uh, into the computer and then, you know, keep the sounds generated out of that. You could get a Nord Stage 2 digital piano. It's got all the sounds you want, plus weighted action, 88 That's keys. what all the cool kids have. Yeah. I, I'm actually, I've been uh, fantasizing over something called the Avant Grand, Avant Grand N3, which it's uh, from Yamaha. It's this hybrid piano where it's got actual wooden action, but uh, it uses lasers or something lasers. to actually trigger the sound. And then they've got these things in the in the keyboard bed that vibrate to make it feel like a real grand piano. Wow. So so wow. you get the same feel as a grand, but you can play with headphones. And you get that sympathetic vibration feeling, which is yeah, missing awesome. in digital pianos. There was one piano that was made in the nineties, I think, by a German company. I can't remember who it was, but they they added the sympathetic vibrations. You know, this is the problem that you get with digital pianos. They're too clean. And when you have a real piano and you hold a note, you're getting those overtones, but you're also getting overtones from all the harmonics, from all the other strings that are sympathetically vibrating. And you just, it's very hard to simulate. But, uh, this, the company went out of business or their, their stuff didn't work as well as they thought it would. I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, enough geeking out on that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at least you guys are talking about a class of gear where five grand can easily be swallowed. Oh, yeah. No problem. Yep. 
Oh, that piano I want, it's twelve thousand dollars. There you Woo! go. So just a down payment. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but I need it, dear. I need it. Yeah. I think the, the Nord stage two is five grand. Yeah, somewhere along there. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yep. Before the break, I made this disparaging comment about, you know, stand-ups. You know, in theory, everybody gets together because we're pulling in the same direction and we're sort of providing mutual support for each other as opposed to we're dragging each other down. But it's it's interesting to see how quickly a team can go from spiraling up to spiraling down on stuff like that. Yeah, it if you're in that mindset of, of just kind of like everyone works on their own thing. Yeah. Um, th- then those meetings are always useless. Like you've, we've all seen them where we go into that daily stand-up meeting and you kind of go around the room and whoever's talking is paying attention and everyone else is completely out cold asleep. Um, that's a dead giveaway that the team is multitasking actually. Right. Mm. So if, if everyone's working on the same stuff, then what they say is relevant. But if, if it's not relevant to everyone else, then you're going to tend to just clue out. Yeah, this guy, so it's an interesting thought to say, is each word that each person says in this meeting relevant to everybody in it? Because it should be. Well, otherwise, why are they there? Yep. Heck yeah. And part of it is that three questions format just right. kind of stinks. Like that, mm. what'd you do yesterday? What are you going to do today? And any impediments? Like, it yeah. usually turns into, well, we know you didn't really do anything, but lie to me. What'd you do yesterday? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what are you going to- Make happy what, noises. What are you- yeah, what are you going to pretend to do today? I mean, I know it's a lie, but just tell me anyway, just so I can write something down. <laughs> yeah. And then no one's ever had any any impediments in the history of time. So Yeah. No, everything's <laughs> fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. We're all fine here. Yep. yep. How are you? How are you? <laughs> We're good. We're good. <laughs> well, yeah, when do you actually admit that you're thrashing? You know, because we, again, earlier in this conversation, we were taught, we were describing stuff that was, I'm hammering away at this problem and I'm not getting anywhere. Hopefully, if you've got a good team, someone else on the team is going to point out to you, hey, Ben, you're thrashing on that, I think. You need some help? Because a lot of times you don't notice it. Right. right. Um, so, hopefully, hopefully, you've yeah. got a scrum master who is going to be aware enough to see that that's happening and and call it out or someone else on the team is doing that. Because yeah. um, a lot of us in the software development world do not have copious amounts of vulnerability. Mm. Um, so being able to admit that sometimes you're going to eat it on a task is really hard to do. That comes down from the top though. When your leaders and your managers can admit that they were wrong about stuff, then it makes it much easier for everybody else. It makes it to be okay to fail, you know? Well, when you're in an organization that focuses on finding blame and assigning blame efficiently, yeah. that's usually a, you know, that's, that's just going to cause problems on the team because now if something's going wrong, you can't openly discuss it right. because whoever smelt it, dealt it, and they're going to yeah. end up getting spanked for whatever reason. So, yeah. I've never, I've never found anybody really interested in assigning blame, just more deflecting blame. I don't care if anybody <laughs> else gets blamed as long as it's not me. Right. It might be yeah. this person. might be that person. <laughs> I, actually, I had a, a, a guy in one of my classes a, a zillion years ago. He was a, an engineer in the Russian army, and his uh, his job was to rebuild blown-out bridges. And the way to sort of get people's minds in the game to make sure that they did it well was that that guy, the guy that was the project manager for rebuilding that bridge in a battlefield, before the tanks went over it, he had to stand under the bridge that he just rebuilt with his team <laughs> Whoa. while the tanks went over the top. Talk about dog fooding. 
Yes. Yeah, really. That kind of focuses the mind. Yes. There's testing. And then there's testing. testing. <laughs> are you sure it works? Are How sure? sure are you? Put- I bet you're pretty sure. Well, you know, yeah. the, the basic idea is giving the developers some skin in the game, you know, give them yeah. an incentive to, uh, you know, and that's kind of a negative incentive. But we were just talking about this, Richard, weren't we? That mm-hmm. um, developers were on a, on a certain company were forced to go out in the field with the technicians and watch people using their software. Yep. We did that a strange loop. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, because how often are you just so disconnected from the reality of your product, right? You're living in your happy little bubble, receiving requirements from your left hand and spitting code out to your right hand and and no idea of how it actually impacts anything. This always comes seems to come back to goals, Ben. Yeah. Like, if you don't have a clear goal, you're going to have unclear focus. That's going to yep. lead to multitasking. That's going to cause your team to not deliver that well. Things are going to go bad. You're going to start blaming each other, you know, blaming other teams and just, you know, bad things happen. Yeah. So, what else can we do to uh, to ameliorate this problem? Well, I, actually, you guys had talked about it before, finding an alternate career. So, I'm going to go raise goats and make goat cheese. Nice. Um, nice. <laughs> that's my solution to it. Uh, Ditch digging. Uh, maybe, yeah. Now, I, I think that one of the real big things is to get that definition of done, focus on taking one thing and driving it to done. Um, right. Rather than having – if you're working on a product backlog item, also known as a feature – if you've got three features that are in flight on the team at one time, well, then you're always going to have some percentage of them done until the end, until ideally the end, and then you get all three done at the same time. But you're going to be paying that overhead of multitasking. But if you work on one thing as a team and drive that to done before you go to the next one, well, worst thing that happens like the entire world could explode and the you know the worst thing that happens is you can still say you got one thing done and you weren't paying that multitasking um tax yeah true so looking up gerald weinberg's multitasking study like just go look gerald weinberg multitasking and that graph is just it's killer it's brutal when okay. you see See, you know, see how much waste you get, like two tasks, 20% waste, three tasks, 40% waste, wow. four tasks, 60%, five tasks, 75% waste. Wow. That's, that's just too much. Wow. Like, managers just think that, that developers can just context switch and man, you got to put that graph in front of, uh, in front of management sometimes and just remind them that that's just not how the world works. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, he, and each one of those, con- those context shifts costs money. They, they, I mean, it's, again, I think there's two different classes here. There's the, I need to look busy and I don't know what to do on this, so I'll switch to something else, versus here's five things, get them to me by the end of the day. Yeah. You know, top-down versus bottom-up multitasking. Well, that whole trying to be busy and trying to make sure that everyone in your team is busy, that that causes some weird optimizations that happen sometimes. Like, actually, one of the things that really is weird um, – I've come to feel like a lot of organizations start growing their teams and making more and more teams because they feel like it should be able to get them to go faster. Right. But Mental in reality, month effect, right? It, yeah. In reality, it doesn't always work that way. And also that mindset of, well, if we have eight people on our team, then all eight people should be busy at the same time. Well, a lot of times that, that 
the science of that says that it doesn't really necessarily work. Like the overall output of the system is constrained to the slowest part of that system. Like um, actually one of the prime examples that I, I saw recently was at uh, a tech conference I was speaking at and they were serving hamburgers that day and they had three food lines all with hamburgers. So you had like a thousand hungry dudes and, you know, conference attendees coming through trying to get their hamburgers and they'd get all the stuff. And at the end of these three lines was only one bowl of ketchup, which caused crazy amounts of backup because what's your constraint there? The one ketchup. bowl of ketchup. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of have to look for what is your, your constraint? What's that slowest point? Optimize that. And that's going to help you move more stuff through the system. Um, more efficiently and not having all kinds of interruptions. You know, the interruptions are basically multitasking. Um, you know, whenever you have to do what's known as rework, that's just a big interruption in the system. Yeah, right. And it turns out you always have a bottleneck, don't you? Yeah, somewhere. Something's yeah, got to be the slowest point. Yeah. And, and you just try and move that bottleneck around till you're going fast enough, which is always an interesting statement. What is fast enough? And it changes. Well, it, and you don't try to deliver any more to that slowest point, that slowest station. You right. don't give any more work to that or don't create any more work for that than that station can actually handle. Because if you create more, then it's just going to back up. And then the second thing is if you have – when you identify what that constraint is, make sure that whatever is going to that is 100% ready. Right. Like QA is a, is a prime example of this. Like Backlog. Developers yeah. – Developers send a whole bunch of stuff off to get QA'd, but they don't really know that it's ready because they don't have unit tests or integration tests or automated build, yada, yada, yada. And they hand off some build to QA. QA starts to work on it. They find that it's garbage and then they push it back to the developers. The developers are interrupted. And then you have to just keep going through this again and again and again. Right. When it, what makes more sense is to make sure that what you're handing off to QA is perfect or as close to perfect as you can so that it probably moves through. There's all these places where you end up creating multitasking. If you get too much backlog, higher priority items start showing up after the lower priority items have started. Boom, you're multitasking. If yep. you shove back work because it was poorly done, you're now interrupting what they've moved on to, more multitasking. Like It, it just gets into this nasty cycle where every move you make makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. It's... It, yeah, I, there's got to be some sort of a, a description to that, but it's kind of like, you know, just like a giant tangle of string at some point. It just uh, I'm gets just to be- going from your notes here. I think the rolling dumpster fire is a pretty good description. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> the, the rolling dumpster fire of failure. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. it. Dumpster fire has been uh, a, a phrase of the day uh, in the last, I don't know, year or so. And it's been used by the, the Pauls, you know, the political right. people to just, yeah. you know, signify utter chaos. <laughs> but a rolling dumpster fire, something moving down the road. That's, that's another class of dumpster fire. That's another class of fire. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, I picked that up from listening to political podcasts. Like, <laughs> I bet. I bet. Of course you did. That's that's where yeah. it's going on. I also find I find people who are addicted to crises. That that is like, they all, the nice thing about having a crisis is you know what to work on. You don't have to think. It's yeah. Just, 
Yeah, what's what's on fire today? Oh, the dumpster. Okay, so we put the dumpster out. But yeah. Now you got another dumpster because as long as I'm doing that, I feel productive, even if I'm not necessarily working on the you know the the most valuable thing. It's just the most important thing because it was a dumpster fire. Yeah. Well, a lot of times you'll have developers or IT people, and we all love them, but they come up with overly complex solutions that cause kind of problems like that. And those those problems are the only things that they can fix. So it makes them super, super busy because right. something explodes, they have to fix it. So it, I mean, man, it makes them feel really good because they're saving the day every single day. They're always the superhero. Yeah. Um, and it's and not you do necessarily get hero addicted cultures too, right? Companies, mm-hmm. it's like oh, they always celebrate the hero. Yeah. Like, Actually, it's in in some of the Scrum classes that we teach at Scrum.org, um, we have a dysfunction called hero dysfunction. Right. That is, it, it's basically one flavor of it is that. And mm. it was kind of tough. Like, you guys probably know Richard Hunhausen. Sure. Yeah, so, sure. I was sitting with Richard and he was, we were going over those dysfunctions together. And uh, I asked him, it's like, Richard, so... What do you do if if you're the person that's got the hero dysfunction, <laughs> thinking that it's me? And he's like, "Well, does that make it any less of a problem?" All right. And at that point, my head exploded because I'm like, "Wow, mm. I've really got a lot of work that I have to do in order to really help my team out." Mm. And and that was actually a major um, major change in my life and in how I work with teams. Kind of led me down the road to this multitasking thing is wow. trying to deal with my own hero dysfunction on teams and just how to get better as a software leader. It's awesome. So, I mean, there's there's multitasking we really do take on. There's multitasking because we have a lack of good plans. And there's multitasking that you create because of quality problems, really, because the work's not being done well and being shipped back and forth. Mm. So, so, I mean, some of them are easier to suppress than others. Not willingly taking on five things at once is one part. But how, how do you, you deal with the rest? Well, like one of the things I'd recommend is there's this book called The Phoenix Project by Gene Kim. Love it, love it, love it. What a great book. Oh, hmm. It's such a great book. Well, he talks about the four types of work. Yeah. Uh, and and he's as he's going through that, he's you know trying to say that you've got business projects, internal IT projects, changes to stuff that's happening and unplanned work. And what he's trying to encourage the reader to do is to pay attention to what all the work is that you have to do. Right. And... You know, a lot of times with with the way that it works, we only notice the things that we're supposed to do on the, the new development projects. Right. And we ignore the other three types of work, like maintenance and the internal projects and unplanned work. Yeah. Well, I think part of that is that new projects are led by management types. And so, they have budget and they need to bang the drum on them. So, they're, they're very visible. Yeah. Right? Where. Yep. And and you even see like eternal projects often have visibility, same thing. They have money assigned to them. But changes and outages, they're largely covered up because they're failures. Yeah. So, you know, they just don't get light. So, you have to pay attention to all the work that's coming through your system and really be honest with it and just totally transparent about what is coming through and until you get a handle on what is actually, you know, coming at you, it's really tough to start noticing that multitasking because a lot of times the multitasking is hidden. Right. Well, I'm thinking about a Kanban board and thinking every time you shift something to the left instead of to the right, you're creating a multitask. 
Yeah. Huh. Well, Kanban is a great example. Like, what's those numbers at the top of the Kanban columns? Work in progress limits. Right. So, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say the maximum number of things that you can have in this state is X. And that's a way of limiting multitasking. Yeah, because there's not enough stuff in a given column to allow somebody to work on more than one thing at once, in theory. Yeah. Well, if you've, if you've got a work in progress limit of, say, five, then you know, that team is not supposed to take on another item because that's more than they can actually do. Like Kanban, at least, is sort of saying, all right, let's be real here. Um, we're going to have to do some amount of multitasking, but mm. let's hold it to a manageable amount. Yeah. Ben, what's next for you? Where are you going to be speaking or talking? Or I've got uh, VS Live Orlando coming up. I'm mm-hmm. speaking also in uh, Milwaukee in a couple weeks. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's what I got. And I actually, I have to send my proposals for VS Live Vegas for next year. So I'm starting to think about March already. It's kind of oh, crazy. Weird. Cool. And you got something on Pluralsight you want to talk about? Yeah, I've got my um, DevOps skills class with Visual Studio and TFS. That should be dropping any time now. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And I talk about the four types of work in IT and multitasking. And it's seven hours of goodness. And we talk about this stuff uh, in that class. Fantastic. Ben, thanks very much. It's been enlightening. Hey, thanks very much for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.